Welcome to our Every Tuesday Media Agenda Talks. I'm Robin Mansell uh, in the Department of Media and Communications, as most of you know. Um, we're delighted to welcome Charles Arthur tonight. Um, I'm tempted to start with a rant that says the reason why we're a bit delayed is because of battles between Microsoft and Apple and the fact that the school doesn't support Apple, but I'll constrain myself. Um, Charles Arthur will be known to many of you who read The Guardian as the technology editor of all of the really good stuff that's in that newspaper. He's been doing that for quite some time. Before that, he worked for The Independent, also as a technology editor. He has um, a whole lot of interesting things to his credit, and I'm not going to go on and on, but one of the really neat things is that he was really instrumental in the Free Our Data campaign, which is something that MPs in Britain and Tim Berners-Lee were involved in to get data out there so it can be used. Um, he's also, in 2012, the author of a book called Digital Wars, Apple, Google, Microsoft, and the Battle for the Internet. I won't say more. Welcome. Thanks very much. Um, I sort of hope, it's like thunder, this thing. Uh, I hope that if I, um, if I stand here that the microphone's picking me up. Yes, everyone at the back? Yep, okay. Um, so yes, this is my book. Um, cleverly, I, I'm sort of so pressed for time that I didn't tell my publisher that uh, I was going to be coming and giving this talk, so uh, they're not here to sell books to you. Um, but you can buy it via that link, which will take you to a, uh, a company which uh, operates in the UK, uh, operates in Luxembourg, and has sort of eventual holdings no one quite knows where, which is called Amazon. Um, and uh, the, title, the title comes itself. What I'll do is I'll talk a little bit about how the book came about, and then I'll talk a little bit about um, what the book itself talks about, and then we'll have some time for uh, questions, and uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm the te technology editor at The Guardian. I've been there since uh, November 2005, so this is me now on seven years there. Uh, I was at The Independent previous to that for uh, about nine years, so um, I guess you could sort of say I'm quite hard to dislodge. Um, and yes, that's the book I've written. Um, and uh, the way that it came about was that um, in April 2010, I got an email out of the blue from someone working for Kogan Page, who are the publishers of this. They publish sort of business books and uh, various books of um, sort of business interest generally, saying, have you ever thought of writing a book... Because we thought that Microsoft, Apple, and Google, that would be sort of interesting because they're, they're big companies and they're, they just seem to always be fighting with each other about one thing or another. Um, and we sort of went back and forth on this. I was sort of unsure about it at first because I, I got another email from someone entirely separate suggesting that I do a book, but they didn't have a subject for me. And the thing about this subject was that it was really hard to put down. As an idea, it just, uh, it just really intrigued me, the, um, the idea of writing about them, because I, I go a long way back in the technology industry. Um, I met Bill Gates in 1985 for the first time, and at that time... Uh, Microsoft was a really small company, uh, just 10 years old at that point. Um, PCs were only just starting to come into uh, sort of general use. IBM had launched the IBM PC in 1982, 1983 in Britain. And uh, PCs, the whole idea of what you would do with them, well, they were really expensive. They sat on your desk. They didn't talk to anything else. They couldn't use the telephone. There was no internet that anyone was really aware of at the time. 
So uh, the idea of a company building itself up and uh, building a fortune from writing software from them was, was one that Bill Gates was, was aware of. And I think he saw that, you know, Bill Gates generally saw the future far better than most people. Uh, and the, thing, the key thing that actually Bill Gates has is, is he's a fantastic businessman. He can really see business opportunities. Uh, so finally the contract was uh, signed with them uh, in November 2010 to write this book. Um, I got an advance, it's not a huge advance um, though I have to say I've managed to uh, sell enough books so far to cover that um, then the next challenge was well what's the, what's the structure for it because um, it'd, be, it'd be very easy and very boring just to do something that was a timeline um, and you know, as I say, if you were just to say that you know, this happened then that happened, then, then Apple did this then Microsoft did it, you'd have a really boring book which um, you know, even though I know a lot of the people in the industry even though there's loads of anecdotes that I've picked up over time, um, it would be very hard to pull that together into uh, something that would interest people something that would really show the character of the sort of wars that, are, that have been going on between these companies because you know, in technology there's a lot of money at stake the thing about technology companies the technology industry generally is that it's really fast growing uh, Moore's law which is the uh, the uh, law come up that uh, Gordon Moore of Intel came up with, which is that uh, processing power roughly doubles every 18 months. That means that you can do twice as much in 18 months for the same amount of money, and that means that you can earn more, you can you can basically sell more things actually, and that's why the technology industry is so fast growing if you compare it to I don't know the building industry, which is mostly reliant on buildings falling down, and uh, the fact that people aren't building land anymore means that it's rather hard to be a big name in the building industry, whereas you can come from nowhere to being gigantic if you're Instagram, uh, purely on the power of software and the, the fact that mobile phones are more, more widely used. So the structure was the important thing, and um, after a fair bit of thinking about it, I finally realised that the way to present it would be um, to give people an idea of what the world was like when the uh, when all these companies were were all actually born together, uh, that is the point where Google enters the picture, which is 1997, 1998. Uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin were together at uh, Stanford University. They came up with the idea of a search engine, which rather like uh, scientific papers, would um, peer review and would uh, would look at what else was out there, what things were being pointed to. Uh, and so Larry Page's name is on the, uh, the PageRank algorithm, and that's really what, what drove Google. So I realized that it should look at how Microsoft and Google had fought each other in search, how Apple and Microsoft had fought each other in digital music, and how Apple and Google and Microsoft had fought each other first in smartphones and then most recently in tablets, uh, and end up with the position of the companies as they, as they stood in the sort of middle of 2011, which was uh, the deadline for writing the book. So then, of course, the challenge is, well, where do you find the information? And just you know, the fact that I've been around the industry a long time doesn't necessarily mean that you have all the information you want in the right, in the right form. But I was um, very interested because one of the books that I've read, and it's sort of important in my job just to keep reading useful business books from time to time, was a book called uh, The Second Coming of Steve Jobs by a guy called uh, Alan Deutschman. And in the acknowledgments, he said, um, who would have thought that you could write a book just by using the Internet? And what fascinated me about this was that the book is full of really interesting first-person interviews, um, you know, clearly well-sourced stuff, where he's found the interesting people, the important people to talk to about things. And yet what he was saying was that basically he'd hardly moved out of his house. And I was looking at the problem of being a uh, UK-based journalist, and yet all of these three companies are based over in the west coast of the United States. And if I was going to consider flying out there and interviewing people, 
Um, first of all, I'd have to secure the interviews, which wouldn't necessarily be that int- well, wouldn't be that easy because um, they're all pretty secretive companies. Um, and secondly, it'd be expensive, and I'd eat through that advance that I'd got for writing the book um, pretty quickly. And uh, so I chose zero profit for all the effort. But what I realised was that obviously the internet gives you the chance to um, travel without actually travelling. Yeah, email is uh, is fantastic, and um, Skype, of course, is very effective if you want to talk to someone directly. The added bonus of Skype is that you can record the calls so that you can then get them transcribed later. And um, that was a tool that I used a great deal. Um, Travelling without actually travelling, meeting people via Skype and talking to people who I discovered through the internet turned out to be a really essential source for the the whole book. Um, And meeting everyone who needed to. uh, Well, on this... A great advantage that I had, which I think that Alan Deutschman didn't have when he was writing The Second Coming of Steve Jobs, because that, that sort of came out in 97, 98, is that nowadays you have all sorts of social networks. So you have Facebook, you have Twitter, and especially you have LinkedIn, which is you know, the professional uh, social network. And the thing about LinkedIn is that people tell you where they used to work. So you can start digging through it and find people who used to work in divisions of Microsoft, divisions of Apple, divisions of Google, because they'll say these things because obviously those make them more valuable to uh, recruiters who are looking to take them on. Um, And by judicious use of Twitter, judicious use of Facebook, LinkedIn, um, just generally reading through the internet, using Google News... Um, using other sources, I was able to find all the people um, that I needed to in the time that I had to get all sorts of background and uh, inside stories about things that have happened in the companies. So the research, a lot of the research and a lot of the actual um, you know, commissioning, of the, you know, writing of the book, uh, in fact, or getting all the material for the book was done purely through the internet. I didn't have to move from my, uh, my room in the place where I live uh, out in rural Essex. Um, then, of course, the next thing is accuracy, and um, accuracy, I think, is a, is a big topic at the moment in the media. Would I be right about that, Charlie? Um, the question was, you know, how can I be sure that um, what people are telling me is correct? How can I be sure that um, I'm actually getting the right quotes about things? Um, for this, there are fantastic resources, archive.org, which is also known as the Wayback Machine, archives web pages, and uh, it'll archive the most abstruse things. And if you know what you're looking for roughly... Um, you can find the right web page and even if it's been wiped from a corporate blog you'll be able to pull it back out because archive.org will have pulled it in at some point and will have indexed it so you can even see how a corporate web page might have changed over time because archive.org takes snapshots of pages and it will say it sort of gives you a graphical representation saying well this page has changed ten times over this period Uh, you can look at each of the snapshots, you can compare them you can see what, what has been changed, you can see how executives have moved um, you know, perhaps if they've been fired, if they've vanished suddenly, uh, and you can also find out where they've moved on to. Um, the Google News Archive, which is also fantastically useful, you can specify a date range. So there was a point when I was trying to find the first use of the phrase iPod killer, um, because over time, lots of devices were described as an iPod killer. And the thing about the Google News Archive was that you can narrow it down. You can say, don't show me any result that comes after such and such a date. And by doing this, I was able to move backwards and backwards in time until eventually I did find the, uh, the sort of ur point of, of uh, iPod killer. It turned out to be 2003. It was um, slightly less than two years, I think, after the iPod actually launched. And the fact that I was able to do this, I thought, was, was just fantastic. And I was able to do the same thing um, trying to find the first use of the word Google as a verb. 
Um, and that turns out to be much earlier than you might have thought. Um, anyone want to hazard a guess? Google was launched in 1998. Anyone want to guess when Google was first used as a verb? Silence. <laughs> a bit too early. Um, yeah, 2000. Um, but it was sort of late in sort of August or so of 2000. Um, and I thought that that was really very telling, that uh, that indicated how quickly Google was moving into the sort of discourse that people would use. If you'd find it in a newspaper describing the verb, um, even if they're sort of saying, hey, here's a strange new verb that people are using, that indicated how, how it was already permeating people's consciousness. Um, and warframalpha.com, which um, most people probably wouldn't have heard of, though... Uh, if you use an iPhone, if you use Siri on the iPhone, a lot of the results um, that it will dig out for you actually come viable from Alpha because it's a sort of a fact-based database. Um, that's fantastic for getting things like stock quotes, market capitalization, uh, investor-type data, um, which was very useful to me because I was trying, trying to tell the story of three companies and three industries uh, and trying to illustrate what was what was happening over those times, uh, and of course the companies investor sites themselves because they're obliged to uh, give uh, financial information, and um, you have to sort of rely on those being true because if they're not true, then they get into lots of trouble with the uh, the business, the stock exchange, uh, sorry, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the states. Uh, challenge number four is right. Well. Um, trying to write 100,000 words um, and trying to make sure that those words are actually interesting, that they tell the right story, um, that they're going to engage the reader. Um, eventually, you just have to actually get the 100,000 words down on paper, even if you've got all the anecdotes and you've got all the uh, information and you've got all the structure. Um, I started writing in around about um, December or January of 2011. Um, I would write at the weekends. I'd write uh, when I was going in and out of work on the train. Um, I'd sort of write when I had any spare time. Um, and this was in, you know, as long as, at the same time as uh, doing my normal job at the Guardian. I mean, um, there's a sort of myth um, among some journalists, I think, about um, how much time do you have, um, how much time do you have left. And I think a lot of people have it. And um, my wife is a novelist, and uh, a friend of ours who's a journalist, said, yeah, we were talking in the pub the other day and we were wondering, how do you ever get round to writing all those books? And she said, well, the, the answer is sort of in what you're saying. You know, you're in the pub. No, I'm not in the pub. I'm writing the books. So it's, um, you know, the, the fact is sometimes you just have to knuckle down and, uh, and get things done. So this is the book. Um, and uh, now I'll try to discuss some of, the, some of the things that are brought up in it. Um... This is a graph. You'll understand what this graph is showing you, but um, what this graph is showing you is, is a key change that's happening to our society right now. It's really happening globally, and it's, making a, it's going to make a key difference, certainly in your lifetimes, definitely already in my lifetime, um, to the way that, that everything happens, to the way that uh, we think about day-to-day -day life. So if we go back to 1998, this is a uh, quote from someone in 1998 uh, and it's by someone who runs a search engine anyone like to guess what the search engine was in 1998 not bad good try yeah. not Yahoo either <laughs> yeah you could have tried like us as well um, yeah, this is back. Altavis is a good one. I know Altavis is pretty good actually, because that's um, th that was the big search engine in 1998. Um, I used Altavis in 1997 when I was trying to find experts 
to talk about the death of Princess Diana and whether she would have survived if she'd been wearing a seatbelt um, when she was killed in the Paris car crash. Um, so yeah, that, that was before Google. Um, but um, this quote actually comes from a guy called David Peterson of Ingtomi. Uh, Ingtomi, which was then subsequently, sorry, 97, I got the date wrong. Um, Ingtomi was subsequently bought by Yahoo. But this sort of thing, you know, people saying this, uh, there was so much bold certainty uh, back in those days about precisely where search was going. Um, Microsoft was doing search as well. It was, it was doing it before Google was. Uh, and their, their aim was to be the biggest company, the biggest thing. We're going to provide people with what they want in search. However, uh, 1998, along comes this little company. Um, and there's this lovely detail just here, which is you can get Google updates monthly. That's something you, you know, you'll never see now. The idea of getting updates about what, what's going on in Google updates monthly subscribing to it. Can you imagine how many emails they would have to send out now? I mean, it'd be lovely to know if there's anyone who's, who is actually um, doing that. And also on the left, you'll notice the special searches that they did. Those were some of their first uh, revenue streams were doing searches for Stanford University and doing searches for, uh, I think it was actually Red Hat they were doing it for. Um, notice the, the lack of advertising, although they do sort of promote themselves in front. Um, and note the lovely logo, which um, these days has changed. But I think that one was done by uh, Larry Page. I think he was the guy who actually designed it. It's rather nice, actually. 3D logo. That's quite unusual for those days. Um, search in 1998 was very simple. Um, the way that search has changed uh, is really dramatic. You know, it used to be that you would just know a few things about. I apologise for the crappy, um, the crappy kerning on this. Um, but I had to bring it over my own from my normal keynote file. Um, if you imagine you know, how much it's like, if you then go fast forward to 2004, Google has all of your web history. It knows what apps you clicked. It knows what you prefer shade of blue. Um, the question about the shade of blue uh, is because um, some people in Google noticed that if you had Gmail when it was first set up had a different uh, hyperlink blue than the normal Google web search results. And they also noticed that people clicked on one shade of blue more than they did on the other. And they wondered if that was because there was a particular shade of blue that people were more predisposed to click on. And being Google, they're very much, uh, very much um, tempted to treat the world as sort of their lab rats, um, but also as a sort of unlimited source of um, empirical data. So what happened, and Marissa Mayer, who's now at Yahoo!, uh, was actually the person behind this. She was, uh, she was told by the designer, screw which colour is better you know, in terms of clicks. I think this is a better blue. We should use this blue. And um, the, the, the web team told Marissa Mayer, no, no, we should really test this out. We should actually do a proper test on this. And at first she, um, she overruled the web team, and then she relented and she said, okay, let's do a proper A-B test. So what they did was they chose 40 different shades of blue, and 2.5% of the people who visited each Gmail page would get a very slightly different shade of blue and they monitored which shade got the most clicks and when they discovered that they made all of the web pages that blue because they decided that this was clearly the blue that people most clicked on and the fact that Google would go through this process shows you how empirical they are. These are people who are ruled by data. They absolutely believe that data will give you the answer if you just throw enough of it at it. And the contrast is quite interesting. If you look at Apple, Apple is very much about we'll design it and that'll be what it is. You know, the user doesn't really get any say in it. It's very much that you present people with a product and if people don't like it, okay, they don't like it. 
that other people, we think, will like it. And Apple really tries to stay just slightly ahead of people's expectations in what they do. Google is quite different. Google is very much, we'll take loads of data until we find out who is actually interested in this and we're going to pull this data together. And they can even use that data to make predictions. So if you try to buy an ad word, which is one of the little ads that comes up beside a search result, and they've never seen this ad word before, if they've never seen this collection of words you're trying to advertise before, they can actually predict based on the data that they've collected from all the other advertising people have done, what sort of price to charge and what sort of click-throughs you'll probably get. And the, the fact that Google's able to do this is something that's very much unseen. There's a huge amount of work that Google does which is never seen by the public, never even understood because it's so subtle. And yet, it's that real data crunching which is what gives Google its power. Microsoft, on the other hand, if I was to try to sort of describe the three companies in, in those sorts of ways, Microsoft gives you absolutely everything. They give you not only the Swiss Army knife, but they also give you the frying pan bolted on and a kitchen sink as well, just in case there are people out there who need the frying pan and the kitchen sink at the same time. Microsoft will give you the whole lot, and they won't be too careful usually about how, how easy it is to use, because they make sure that once it's in your hands, you pay the price for it, and then you go and use it. And that's been the sort of ruling thought behind Windows and behind Office, which uh, generate more than 50% of their profits each. So Windows generates about 54% of profits, uh, Office about 53 or 54, because they then lose 8% of the profits on their online search. Um, but Microsoft is very much about the kitchen sink. And it's interesting that it's only recently, with the launch of Windows 8 and Windows Phone, that they've gone away from throwing everything at the user. So if you look at the interface of Windows 7, everything is there. The start button has millions of programs on it. You've got loads of icons all over the desktop. Now with Windows 8, they've gone to a much different paradigm, which is one of saying, okay, we're not going to show you everything. We're going to show you a few things, and we'll pick what things you get to use. And the fact that Microsoft is thinking like that, to some extent, shows that they're starting to follow the sort of Apple aesthetic of don't give people everything, just give them a few things, but the right thing. And um, that's, if you wanted a sort of way to think about how the, the companies think internally to themselves, that would be the way. Um, and just for, fast forwarding to uh, 2012, you now have even more things. Google, you know, when you're doing a search on your mobile phone, for example, if it's running Android, Google knows far more things about you. And all this information that it has about search makes it so much more complicated, so much more uh, fine-grained and the possibilities of what they can do in terms of returning search results that are tailored to your location and the time of day and where you've been before and what sort of things you've searched before and where your Wi-Fi is and what sort of restaurants you've done and what time of day it is. All these things are, are now, for example, built into a product called Google Now, which looks at what you've been doing over the days and weeks beforehand and tries to predict what you'll be doing. So, for example, if you regularly take... Uh, if you regularly drive into work, for example, Google now will say, by the way, there's a traffic jam on this piece of road which you normally drive down. And it will try to warn you about that before you go on it. And that's Google trying to use all this, all this data up here to, uh, to really start to understand the user before the user understands what they want to know themselves. That's, that's what Larry Page, uh, who runs Google, um, once described as the ideal, the ideal sort of situation for Google would be it knows what you want to do before you, you have the intent yourself. Uh, and Google Now, uh, which is built into uh, the newest version of Android 4.2, 4 
is very much an expression of that, of wanting to be able to do things and provide you the information even before you know that you want it. The interesting thing though about Google, um, one, of the, one of the things that, um, one of the points where I start the book, because it starts in 1998 with Google being born, um, and looks then at what happened to Microsoft, where Microsoft was very hard hit uh, by the antitrust trial in the US, which uh, started in 1998 and uh, concluded in 2000. Um, Microsoft was found guilty in the US of uh, operating an illegal monopoly by having Windows and using the Internet Explorer monopoly to uh, drive out other browser companies. And that experience really hurts Microsoft. And ever since then, they've been very wary of anything that might smack of antitrust. And to some extent, it's, uh, it handcuffed them over the, sort of the next decade or so. Google is in a situation now where it's being investigated by the FTC in the US and by the European Commission uh, over here. In the US, its search share is about 65, 66%. Over here in Europe, it's much bigger. It is, um, without a doubt, a monopoly. And in the EC, you only have to be a monopoly to get looked at rather closely. You don't necessarily have to be uh, doing anything uh, trying to push another monopoly, which is the part that's illegal in the US. So it's, it's not exactly illegal to have monopoly in, in, the, in Europe, but you do have to be very careful of how you operate. And um, one of the things that is going to be interesting to see in the next few months even, and possibly in the next few weeks, will be whether the FTC and the European Commission um, decide to take legal action against Google over the power that it has in the market. So the next bit of the uh, book is about digital music, um, and this is where we have the rise of the iPod, um, which is really what made Apple come back uh, pretty much from the dead, because as a computer maker, it really wasn't, um, wasn't set in the world on fire. It had about 5% share, but it was always just at the high end. It was never really going to break out of that 5%, because Windows was just too big. And um, the, the whole genesis of the iPod is, is really fascinating. Um, it started off with the fact that Toshiba built a really small hard drive, uh, two and a half inch hard drive, which could hold five gigs of music, which at the time, which is 2000, was revolutionary. And Apple had been looking for a way to break out of the computer market and into the whole consumer electronics market. Um, they'd started a project at the back end of 2000 to do this. And when they found this Toshiba hard drive, they uh, latched onto it, built the iPod, released it in October 2001, and um, the rest of it is, is sort of history. And, um, I mean, I detail in the book how many chances Microsoft missed. Um, they, they had lots of opportunities. They were always certain that the PC business um, would be the model on which the digital music player business would follow. That they, Microsoft, would write the software, other people would make the hardware, um, other people, again, would make the content, and that just as with PCs where Microsoft did the software, someone else did the hardware, someone else wrote the apps, that um, you know, they would just wipe Apple out, that the sheer volume of all the hardware partners would kill them. Turned out not to be that way, because the hardware partners couldn't get any margin. And when something went wrong with your digital music player, it was really annoying, and you didn't know who to blame. You didn't know whether the problem was with the people who made the hardware, or whether it was with Microsoft, or whether it was the people who were trying to sell you the music. Um, and eventually Microsoft realized this, and Steve Barmer, who's the chief exec, has been since 2000, um, decided that Microsoft needed to build its own digital music player. It needed to compete head-on with Apple. So this graph shows um, the iPod sales as multiple of what they were in the previous year. So you can see that in the 
first quarter of 2003, it was about 1.8 times. So, you know, it increases. But you can see how there's just this enormous explosion, which um, in 2005 really, you know, really takes off. And um, the, the question for, for Microsoft was, well, would they introduce the Zoom? So the question becomes one of, okay, where do you think they introduced the Zoom? At what point in this graph do you think they introduced the Zoom? Anyone care to hazard a guess? It's sort of it's very hard. If you, if you are latest pointers, maybe that'd be it. Um, but they uh, they chose to introduce it here, when the market had not just had its explosive growth, but it was actually heading into decline. The point where those blue lines go underneath the red line is the point where the market is actually shrinking, where Apple is selling fewer than it did the year before. So Microsoft introduced the Zoom at the back end of 2006, sort of November of 2006. And that is the time when Apple had already realized that the iPod, the whole digital music player explosion, was coming to an end. And they were about to introduce the iPhone because they knew that actually the technology was ready, the whole, the whole flash memory business was ready to, uh, incorporate it into, to incorporate the iPod into a phone, and that also they had the technology now to do the, uh, the whole work on the phone. And if you look on this graph, the point where Apple started to develop the iPhone is about there. It's actually around about the sort of end of uh, 2004, 2005. That's really where the whole project kicked off. And um, they were working with other people there on a the phone, but the, um, the whole and the development really had a key pitch there through to there in 2006 but actually you know, they knew the, uh, the iPod was not going to be their saviour for that much longer they knew that they had to replace it and they knew that the uh, mobile phone was the growth market uh, for, the next, for the next few years so Microsoft basically completely missed the wave it's like a surfer who comes along after the wave is broken and uh, tries to ride the wave you know they're, they're just in the in the shallows there there's nothing to be done and the zoom was uh, withdrawn i think it was um, last year sometime having done absolutely nothing in the market it was never sold outside the united states um and even though it had steve Barmer's backing even though they drove it through um, they could just never make it happen smartphones which is things like the iPhone. Now, the iPhone wasn't the first um, device to be a smartphone. Uh, Microsoft had been in there before, um, and uh, Nokia had been in there with Symbian. But um, the, the whole idea of unlimited data and the internet in your pocket was one that, that uh, really needed a bit of a push. But just to show you the sort of disruption, because one of the things that... Um, that, that I think is hard to, for people to understand is how much disruption the whole smartphone industry has been going through. So this is, the, um, this is a graph from Wolfram Alpha of the market capitalization of a, uh, a smartphone company. Um, uh, just to explain what market cap actually means, market capitalization is the product of the numbers of shares that have been issued times the share value. And that might sound as though it doesn't mean anything. What it actually is is the stock market's best guess at the sum total of your future profits uh, if you were to just pay it out now. So um, if your market cap is $26.4 billion, the market reckons that by the time your company finally fizzles out to nothing, it will have made a total profit during its lifetime uh, equal to $26.4 billion in present-day money. So if you have a big market cap, the market thinks you're going to make lots of money. If you have a small market cap, the market thinks that you're um, not going to go anywhere, basically. So for this company, um, things are going fantastic. Anyone want to care? Well, guess what the company is. 
man, for example. Sorry? No, this is a smartphone company, not, not Google. Mm. Sorry? RIM it is. It is indeed RIM, the uh, Canadian company which makes the BlackBerry. So uh, here we have this point at the uh, sort of middle of 2008, and things are looking fantastic. Its market cap is gigantic. Uh, and then we come to the present day. And this is the same graph, except it's now been scaled up to 2010. And what you can see is that there's been a great takeoff over there, which was that point in the previous graph. But equally, that um, something happens at both these two points, that there's a collapse, basically, in the company's stock price, and therefore its market capitalization, and therefore the, uh, the expectation of how much money this company is going to make over its lifetime. Um, now, it being RIM, you might think that the people who did it were these guys. Steve Jobs, your life in your pocket, the ultimate digital device, the iPhone. Except the thing is, the iPhone wasn't really that disruptive to RIM to begin with. It wasn't able to do things like exchange email, it wasn't able to do secure email, it wasn't as secure in any way uh, as the RIM devices were. And the RIM stronghold was very much in corporations where it was useful for its uh, secure email. Um, you know, finance companies loved it. Um, all sorts of organisations, including governments, which needed that sort of security, needed it. So Barack Obama was using a, a, a BlackBerry when he first came into office. So if you actually look at the point where the iPhone was launched and you look at RIM's market cap, or stock price, which is effectively the same thing because they didn't change the stock, in, you can see that actually when the iPhone is launched, RIM's stock takes off. And that's because all the analysts say, well, hey, the smartphone segment is really taking off. RIM makes smartphones, therefore they're going to do well. If Apple does well and smartphones sell, then RIM smartphones are going to sell as well. Everything is really rosy. So they start buying the stock, so the stock price goes up. But something happens. And uh, it's not just that, that Apple is, uh, is in there. Because if you look at this, this graph, this shows the, uh, the number of handsets running different versions of mobile operating systems. So uh, iOS is Apple's iPhone. Uh, RIM is RIM. Um, Android is not in there at all at this point, because by the third quarter of 2008, uh, there weren't any Android handsets. Windows Mobile, you can see up at the top, um, you know, Microsoft had a good business in that. Um, but Symbian is actually, Nokia Symbian is the one that's doing the biggest business. So um, clearly it wasn't, and if you sort of look at the way that those, um, those fit together, um, there's a sort of a bit of a dip between the fourth quarter and the first quarter. That's just because you know, Christmas more phones sell, uh, first quarter fewer, fewer sell. Um, but uh, the whole balance is, is there. RIM is going up and it's uh, not being disrupted by the iPhone. The iPhone is selling more, Symbian is selling about the same number. So nothing has been disrupted there. Then something happens. And this is the something that happened. And these are the guys who did it. Um, these guys. <laughs> these guys who come to the launch of their mobile platform wearing rollerblades. Larry Page and Sergey Brin. This is what happens when you add Android into the mix. And you can see that the Android sales just take off. And it's interesting because the, uh, the model that didn't work in the digital music player market of having one, people, one person make the software, another do the hardware, another do the apps, suddenly really does work when it comes to mobile phones and smartphones particularly. Google does the software, uh, it, other people do the, uh, the handsets, other people do the apps, and it all goes absolutely um, swimmingly. And you see that Nokia is um, completely destroyed by this. 
Uh, REM is starting to head downwards by the, uh, the sort of beginning of this year. Uh, Apple is sort of heading upwards, and it has these rather rather peculiar spikes because those are driven by the availability of a new handset. Um, don't have the third quarter figures yet, but it's probably going to go in much the same sort of way. The only one that's got a general trend upwards, uh, apart from Android, is, uh, is Apple. But this sale, the, the huge sales, that's actually 100 million handsets being sold. Um, this uh, enormous number of handsets being sold indicates you know, what a big market this is. So Android uh, is really the one that started disrupting the whole business. Uh, and it's kept on doing it. So you can see the way that the Android wedge comes in there and starts pushing everything out of its way. Uh, and this is showing you how the whole uh, smartphone sales have been progressing since the first quarter of 2007, which is you know, really the, the beginning of the modern smartphone era, which is when uh, Apple introduced the iPhone, people got used to the idea of uh, touchscreens and mobile internet all the time, and 3G services really started to be used. Um, but Android is the thing that's really making the colossal difference to it. So with the Android takeover of the rest of the mobile phone market, there go RIM's profits, and RIM is now bumping along the bottom. Uh, it's made losses for the past uh, three quarters, I think. Um, it's expected to make another loss uh, in its coming quarter, and the question is, can it survive? It's just been torn apart by the fact that the iPhone is now good enough for enterprise, so that the, the UK government and the US government uh, are now using it for enterprise work and that uh, Android handsets are cheaper than, uh, than the BlackBerry handsets um, for pretty much anyone but teenagers. And the other thing is that smartphones are, are taking over the, the whole world. So this is um, showing the, uh, the smartphone penetration for the US and um, the figures, the 234 figures, these figures come from Comscore, 234 is uh, 234 million people who have, who have handsets, um, mobile handsets in the US. Uh, the 117 mark is the 50% mark. That's where 50% uh, of the population are. And the grey is all the feature phones. And you can see that you start back down in 2009, uh, and pretty much uh, everyone is, is using them. So that's the 10% mark. So it's about 15% or so of the population is, uh, is using smartphones. And it just keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The, uh, in this slide, uh, Android is actually the blue color, and uh, the iPhone is in green. Uh, but again, you can see that, that the Android wedge just comes in there, just pushes everything out, and starts disrupting it. And as you get to 50% 50, 50 smartphone penetration, it starts to be the ones who are using the feature phones who are left behind. It's, they start to be the ones who are not uh, getting the full advantage of uh, what there is to offer. Uh, and the point about global mobile penetration uh, is very key because you don't have to have uh, electricity to power a mobile phone. You can have things like hand cranks or you can have solar power. Um, and a mobile phone will last a lot longer than a computer. So smartphones, where they're available, become the, uh, the replacement for a computer. There are lots of places where the, uh, the arrival of the smartphone is actually having more of an effect uh, than a PC ever would have because it's able to run apps, because it's able to um, communicate in a way that you can't do. So the question is with the, uh, the growth of smartphones is whether it's exponential and um, I would say it is and the interesting thing is that one of the biggest, the biggest smartphone market now in the world is China where um, Android phones are just selling like absolute hotcakes. They're 80% of the smartphone sales 
uh, in China are Android handsets which are selling for $50, $75. They're selling for pretty much nothing. They're handsets you wouldn't recognize here, made by companies you'd never heard of. But the fact that they're being used by people in China is going to change China dramatically in the next five years. Um, and give it 10 years, it'll be unbelievable. You'll, you'll hardly recognize it. And when Android comes to Africa and uh, changes that as well, uh, you know, again, that's going to that's gonna radically transform the landscape there. When you get internet services for people who've never had the internet before, when they're able to get it um, pretty much through the whole of the day, because the battery will last the day where they couldn't service a PC and couldn't even afford a PC, that, again, is going to radically change the, change the whole world. So... The smartphone, I think, is actually the, the, the key story in all of this. And in the digital wars um, between Apple, Microsoft, and Google, it doesn't matter to some extent which of them is winning because actually uh, we're all winners, really, through the benefits the Internet can bring uh, and through the, the fact that it just brings knowledge to people. And I think that's actually a great thing. Android, in that respect, is you know, just an unalloyed good uh, because it brings the Internet to people in places where they could never have got it otherwise. And that's really all I have to say on that. Thank you very much. Um, do you prefer to take questions standing up or sitting down? Sure, no, I'm happy standing up. Because there are chairs. No, no, I'm not tired. Okay. I sit down all day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the, the question's about will there come a point when um, the penetration hits 90% and the growth slows? Well, yes, obviously it must, it must slow at that point. Um, though equally, once you've got to have many, what, 6 billion or so, or 5 billion phones, 5 billion smartphones, that's a lot of smartphones. That can, that can support a lot of different ecosystems. So there's, you know, given that the installed base of smartphones worldwide at the moment is something around a billion, there's a lot of room, there's a lot of headroom yet. Um, and the 50% in the States, you know, that still leaves another 50% to aim for. And you know, it's barely even begun to scratch the surface in China. Um, you know, it's the biggest smartphone market, but nothing like a 50% penetration there. So, yes, there will inevitably come a point when it slows down. But equally, um, there's, there's plenty of time yet before that happens. Uh, to the other part of your question, which is, will something come after the smartphone um, in the way that the iPhone came after the iPod? Certainly, yes. And I think that what uh, Google is doing with Google Now, what it's doing with Google Glass, I think that those are really interesting. Um, I think Google Glass is probably the most interesting project that I've seen out there because of the idea that you wouldn't have to uh, look at a device, that the device is basically head-mounted for you, that you can get the information you want presented to you at a time when you want. And I think that, that some sort of combination of a head-mounted display like that um, a device the size of, say, the Galaxy Note, so it's big enough to really look at a large, um, you know, large web page, or even as big as the iPad Mini. What the hell? Because um, that fits in. That'll actually fit in the coat pocket. Um, plus, voice recognition, voice-driven systems like Siri. You know, if you put the, the combination of those three together, you'd have a complete uh, internet experience um, any way you wanted, and yet you wouldn't have to be looking at, you know, taking things out of your pocket all the time. You could just drive it with your voice. 
and look at it with your eyes and just you know, have that experience there. Of course, that sort of requires pervasive internet, but things like 4G and uh, you know, better, better availability of mobile signals, I think, means that's coming. Okay, so where do, where do free and open source systems built by communities come in? Um, well, smartphones are a gigantic market, sort of worth around about $200 billion. There are no free open source handsets. So although Android is built on, built on Linux, sort of uses Linux, Google doesn't uh, drive the development of Android in a sort of open source software way. It's not built in the same way. It's not that the, the sort of enablement of it doesn't happen in the same way as Linux does. Um, that said, uh, all the Chinese handset manufacturers who are using Android, who are not necessarily using using Google services, um, they're sort of taking it and tweaking it as they like. So, like I say, that's that's a sort of a, that's a good thing. Actually, the availability of that software to uh, to do that is a good thing. Um, but it's not undermining the capitalist system. All that happens is that the um, the value layer moves up. So rather than the, the value layer being built around um, the, the sort of the very base level software, it just moves up to the services that you provide. So um, Apple monetizes the hardware through the services that it provides on the, so on the, on the handset. Um, Google monetizes the, uh, the services. It doesn't get any money from the handset directly, but it monetizes the services such as Google Mail, Google Search, um, Google Maps, you know, you name any of the Google services. Uh, it just, you know, the, the, the capitalist system works perfectly well. It just moves up a layer. Um, I, I don't generally read the tech news, so it's sort of noticed that it seems like Apple hits mainstream general news more often, so it seems more pervasive. And I was wondering if you find that's the case, and if so, what kind of explains that bias? Why we're so fascinated? Mm. Why it translates to general news from tech? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, Apple, Apple sort of rings little bells with, with people, and I think there are multiple reasons for it. Um, first of all, uh, is actually just that um, the products it builds, people find really interesting. That's, that's one thing. So uh, when the iPod first came out, I tested it against multiple other digital players. And the thing with the iPod was that actually it was really well designed. It really worked well. It had things like the, the scrolling wheel for going through huge lists of songs. And nothing else had anything even remotely comparable to that. So the products are very, are very interesting. They're very intriguing. Um, they're quite expensive, which makes, which makes them aspirational. The fact that people, when people like Apple products, they really like them. That's, that's quite a key thing. Because that sets off a, a reaction, which is an interesting social reaction, which Don Norman, who works for the Norman Nielsen Group um, and used to work for Apple, pointed out to me. He said, you know, the thing is that, that Apple generates strong reactions. So you get people who really like the products and they sort of evangelize and say, hey, look at this. It's really interesting. Um, 
And then people react to that. They react to the people really liking the product. It's like sort of seeing two people who really love each other going down the street kissing. That's like, just think, get a rum, you guys. Stop being... And, and Apple really... It's very evident if you look on um, sort of you know, comment threads and stuff underneath any article that mentions Apple, is that it really engenders strong, strong emotions, you know, hate and love. Um, and it's mysterious, so it's not very open about how it works. And, yeah, there was a cult of personality around Steve Jobs for a long time because he was very good at sort of gnomic statements. Um, and now it's really big. You know, it makes lots and lots of money. It makes more money from the iPhone than Microsoft does from everything. So, you know, although that wasn't always the case, and, you know, when it made the iPhone, it was sort of quite small. It's that combination of all those things together um, which gives it a sort of a, a cool factor, a peak the interest factor, and people have heard of it factor. That's, that's sort of what it comes down to. I have a question for you. Mm. Um, you talked a lot about disruptive technologies and yes. what we can see on those charts as waves of something new coming along and it yeah. bumps up can you talk a little bit from the point of view of the business strategies um, why it is that some companies suffer this failure of imagination in a way and other companies get it head on because the story you're telling sounds a little bit like it's almost it's accidental you don't know mm. I wonder if you could okay so disruption is really interesting um, I mean I wrote a I actually wrote a, a sort of analysis last week um, thinking about Android, thinking about, well, what is it that Android really disrupts? What is the business? Because um, business disruption happens when a new technology comes into a space and it uh, basically is a lower cost or the same cost but offering far better features than what is there already. And it drives out what was there. So, for example, um, the iPod and digital music players came in and they drove out the mini disc and the portable CD player. Uh, they just—they were just so much better. They did the job so much more effectively because you know you couldn't jog them, you couldn't uh, sort of lose your music, and uh, they could hold more music. So they were completely disrupted in that respect. Um, Android disrupts the feature phone business. You know, if you looked at that graph, if you go back to the um, oh, if you go back to this one, yeah, if you actually look at what is what has been driven, the uh, the wedge, the green wedge, the uh, the Apple wedge isn't actually reducing. Uh, if anything, it's getting bigger. This is the install base. What's happening, though, is that the grey the gray chunk is getting taken by that blue chunk of Android phones. They're coming in and they're disrupting what's going on with the people making feature phones. So the people who are making feature phones, the, the phones which can't do the internet, can't do email, um, are all getting pushed out by these Android phones, which cost about the same, but do far more. So when it comes to businesses being ready for disruption and being prepared to disrupt things... The, uh, the key there is being willing to accept that it is going to happen, that the technology will come along and do this, that Moore's Law says if you wait two years, you'll have four times the computing power. Someone will be able to sell you a chip which will do four times as much for the same price. What is it that's going to be that you're going to be able to do with four times as much compute power? You know, be ready for that in two years, or else suffer the consequences. So um, Apple, as I said, was working on the iPhone back when the iPod was doing great guns. Now, they could have waited another year. They could have said, but the iPod is fantastic. Look at all this money. We're swimming in money. Why would we kill it off? You know, why would we do that to it by selling iPhones? You know, phones, we've never been in phones. That's a dangerous business. Don't go there. But no, Apple was, you know, Apple was prepared to go in there and, and kill it. And again, actually, with the iPad. What is it the iPad disrupts? There, there's no tablet business 
uh, pre-existing to the iPad. There was, there was sort of about a million or two million um, tablet devices running Microsoft Windows were sold per year when Apple introduced the iPad. Apple sold 10 million iPads in its first year. So it must have been doing something to some business. You, know, you don't sort of come in with a competing device and sell all those and suddenly not have any effect elsewhere in the forest because it's all interlinked. People don't have infinite amounts of money. What was happening was that low-end computing was being disrupted, was being just pushed out. People were saying, no, I won't buy that, I'll buy this. They weren't buying netbooks, they were buying iPads. They weren't buying cheap computers, they were buying iPads instead. And that was what the iPad did. And it also has an effect on Apple's PC business. So, you know, the Mac business is disrupted by the iPad. But Tim Cook has said, we're quite willing to take that because we think that actually we sell, you know, we sell one piece, one computer to every 19 that the Windows guys do. So we figure our charges, our chances are about 19 to 1 in our favor that the person is going to be choosing, you know, is going to be ignoring a Windows computer and buying an iPad to ignoring one of our computers and buying an iPad. So the disruption is something that companies are willing to do and they're willing to embrace. Google is the same. Google is willing to say, you know what? Phones are going to get better. They're going to get smarter. They're going to have the internet in them one day. And that is why um, Peyton Brin bought the Android company. Uh, Android it wasn't actually a pre-existing company within Android. They didn't set it up. It was, uh, it was set up by uh, Andy Rubin, who's ex-Apple. Uh, and they bought it in 2005. They didn't even tell Eric Schmidt, who was the chief executive at the time. They just bought it because they knew that mobile was the future. And they're completely prepared for Android to go out there and disrupt the whole desktop business that they have, which is bringing in billions in advertising, uh, and for all of that to go mobile because they realize it has to happen. If they don't do it, someone else will. And Microsoft's weakness has been that it's not prepared to disrupt itself. So uh, when it comes to Windows, when it comes to Office, it's not been prepared to say, okay, this is going to happen, we need to be there, and we have to accept that the business uh, might suffer in the short term, but in the long term will benefit. And the, the sort of stagnation that has happened at Microsoft, which I think they're actually getting past it now, I think they're actually prepared to move more quickly now, but that stagnation for more than five years really hurt them badly. And the example in the smartphone business, um, RIM is actually the classic example. They thought that what they had was fine. They were completely complacent about that. And it was only when it was too late, which was the beginning of this year, that it really turned down. But having turned down, once the market turns down, there's no way they can bring it back. And I'm very dubious about their chances of actually regaining any sort of share in the market uh, with their new handsets. You know, it doesn't matter that the software is the most incredible thing in the world. The fact is that it's not going to be a gigantic advance on what we have now. And so disruption happens, and you just have to be the one who's causing it, because otherwise it'll happen to you. About the ooh, the right to be forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's difficult, isn't it? Um, because I think we've seen in the past week that um, the right to be forgotten would be quite useful, wouldn't it, for sort of former Tory treasurers? Um, yeah, my, my, my view on that is that where you have controversial subjects, that, that there is some benefits in, in doing it. Um, 
But equally, what I was working on was, you know, it's non-controversial, it's just about what you do. So I was working through people's CVs, information that's publicly available. Um, the right to be forgotten is a really complicated one. And um, I feel that where there are overriding considerations of personal safety, of personal privacy, that, that it would be useful to have in a way to affect that. But it's really hard to see how you do it in an interlinked world where people can store stuff that has been online, offline, and where they can then put what was offline back online. It's really hard to erase something. Really, really hard. Other questions up there? Top? One or, one or other of you? <laughs> So that's a sort of a, there's sort of different strands there. So the first one is about you know I'll, I'll take the first I'll reorder them slightly. So the first is about is the innovation pipeline there? And I think the answer is we don't know. Really, really impossible to know what they're working on. So um, you know the iPad Mini which they announced last month, um, you know that that had been rumoured for quite a while. I saw rumours of it. Uh, pretty much the week after the iPad, the very first iPad launch, people said, yeah, they're just about to do a 7-inch one, I'm sure of um, yeah, no source ever. But um, the fact is that we have no idea what the pipeline is. And actually, you know, people haven't known for a long time. Um, so when they come up with services, uh, you can sort of guess when they buy companies, you know, if they buy a mapping company, say, yeah, probably going to do something maps then. But... Uh, in, in terms of, you know, are they going to produce a tablet of some different size, or are they going to do a Google Glass thing, or are they going to do something entirely different which incorporates Siri and artificial intelligence? You just don't know. So, actually, um, it's completely opaque whether Apple's innovation is uh, still there. Um, you know, I'm sure that they come up with more ideas than they can handle every day, because most people can you can think of more things but the question usually for Apple is well how big is the market is it worth disrupting this existing market in order to do this um, you know, is there an existing if we, if we produce technology A what's, you know, what are we going to get why are people going to buy this over something else and they, they you know, my understanding of the way that they work is that they look at how, how compelling is it to use as a technology you know, they're very much focused on the user. They're not sort of throw it out there and see if it gets used. That's really not how they work. And Apple, you know, the interesting thing is always Apple TV, which they've had for years, which is selling in slightly more numbers all the time, and yet, you know, never seems to quite gel. And that's and that's intriguing. You know, TV is just such a knotty problem. The idea that Apple would make its own TV, I still find, I still find ludicrous. The market just isn't big enough. But 
Yeah, we don't know what the pipeline is. Um, the second one's about they do, do they have a showman who can sort of you know do these things amazingly well? Yeah, Tim Cook's not great at the public speaking bit. Um, Phil Schiller, I think, is actually. I've seen him do a number of speeches, and he's he's really funny. He's very he's very witty. He's got very good timing, um, but he's not a showman in the way that Jobs was. He doesn't sort of he doesn't sort of make you reckon that you're just about to witness the big bang. Um, so yeah, yeah. There's a slight edge. There's an edge gone there, and so more of the focus has to be on how good is the product, how good is the service, how good is the hardware, um, and that's difficult to pull off. Uh, it's you know it's always difficult, and it's intriguing. Scott Forstall, who's now been pushed out, um, yeah, he was quite good at this sort of stuff. He was quite a quite a good presenter. We'll see how the other guys do. Um, but you know, as the showmanship go- thing goes, yeah, you know, Steve Jobs was. He was pretty hard to beat. There wasn't anyone, I don't think, who could who could do it as well as he could, and that's partly because he just practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And a lot of people don't realise that. They don't realise how much work he put into it. Um, and the other thing is uh, maps and Siri. Yeah, big missteps. Mm. Sort of. Um, yeah, Apple has its reasons to do with, you know to do with maps uh, and Siri as well. Both of those are disambiguating Google. They're basically both of the, the idea behind both of those is to uh, push Google off the iPhone and the iOS platform and to pull more of the data that users uh, want, you know, about what users want, to go through Apple so that they can start to do their own uh, what is your intention, a sort of Google narrowish thing. So um, 200 million people, according to Tim Cook, have uh, updated to R6, so that's 200, me- 200 million people who are not using Google Maps. That's quite a big hit for Google. That's about one-fifth, I think, of the um, available Google Maps mobile users. That's a big difference. And actually, I don't, you know, I don't know. I use the maps and you know, people criticise them. I've, I've not had any complaints. Me, personally, I use them. I find them fine. Um, Siri, I use it. I find it very useful, actually. I, um, I was using it when I needed to... I was driving somewhere and I had to be sending uh, my daughter some texts about um, something where she was looking after someone in the hospital and I was using Siri to send the text while I was driving. And I couldn't have done that by typing because I didn't have the thing. So being able to just dictate texts via Siri saying, tell so-and-so, blah, 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 and it would then do the text, that's pretty useful to me. Um, so, you know, people might think Siri isn't used, but I, I suspect that the adoption is growing um, and you know, it's not getting worse. But you know, it's all part of Apple trying to make its platform entirely its own. And that's, that's the view you have to take of what it's doing. Um, we should stop in a minute. I've got one last question for you, um, if I may. Um, in a way, when you were talking about uh, Android going into China and hmm. into Africa, it kind of sounded like story that sometimes we read where the technology goes and good things follow. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of nuance that a little bit. I mean, do you think that the technology will really provide all these opportunities as it has in the Western world, or do you think there's some hiccups along the way, and if so, what are they? Well, there are bound to be hiccups, but I mean, in general, um, there was a there was an OECD study, I think, um, which found that for every um, was 10% penetration of mobile, the GDP went up by 0.1%, which is significant. Um, and, you know, the classic tale is of the um, Tanzanian uh, fisherman who ha- gets a mobile phone and now is able to phone ahead to the ports 
um, before he makes landfall and find out which port he should go to to sell his fish at the best price. Before he had the mobile phone, he couldn't do that. So he lost out because he couldn't get the best price for his fish. You can sort of imagine that with a smartphone, he might, you know, if he gets lost in the storm, be able to find his way back to back to his, um, back to shore or whatever. That, that you know, there are added benefits, and I can I can see sort of all the all the medical benefits. I mean, I'm a bit. I guess I'm a bit Bill Gates in this. You know, Bill Gates is very. is always someone who always sees, you know, always just talks the upside, and um, you know, he's always seen the, the great possibilities of tech and. Uh, I don't know. I I know that there'll probably be problems such as more hacking and uh, you know more people faking your email address and more spam um, and um, you know more emails from people claiming to be Prince Ubuntu who's got a million dollars that they want to get out of Uganda or something. Um, but that's sort of you know you sort of reckon that the upsides outweigh the downsides generally. And looking at more more broadly, you know, smartphones haven't been a huge bad thing in the UK. Okay, they've led to more thefts but actually if you lock your phone and you lock your pin, or lock your SIM rather, um, then even that makes it more replaceable. A smartphone is more replaceable. This is a great thing. A smartphone is more replaceable than a feature phone because with a feature phone uh, all your contacts are just stuck on the phone and in the SIM. Whereas with a smartphone you can have them all up in the cloud. So that you know, if you've got the phone, if the phone has a lock on it um, you know, pin digit or whatever lock and the SIM has got a lock on it the SIM, the SIM is no use to someone who steals it. The phone is no use to someone who steals it. And you can wipe it remotely. You can get a new phone, put all your contacts back, and you're back to where you were literally you know, within hours, which is far, far harder on a feature phone. So in that sense, actually, um, you know, smartphones are far, far better, even if the, uh, the theft breakers are. Okay. I think we could go on all night. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to have to end. Thank you, Charles.